Ride With Us, presented by Ace, the American Coaster Enthusiasts. I am Sam Marks from Falls Church, Virginia. Ace to me is just a simple part of my life that I could never live without. The friends I've met in Ace are the best friends I've ever had. My name is Troy Parsh. I've been an Ace for the past six or seven years now. Uh, Ace is pretty important to me. It's done a lot of inspiration in my life. It uh, inspired me to get more behind the preservation of roller coasters rather than just riding. In fact, they've inspired me to start my own amusement park museum, uh, finding stuff kind of like American Picker style, just it rotting away in backyards and bring it back to life. Um, it's also found a lot of lifelong friends and overall been a lot of fun over these past few years and I'm not planning on leaving Ace anytime soon. Hi, I'm Kim Steffen. And I'm Robert Steffen. And we met over the love of roller coasters. And that's why we like Ace so much, because it allows us to be with other people that also like what we like. And go to parks that we wouldn't normally think about going to. And go to areas in parks that we aren't normally allowed to. Those are some of the neat benefits about Ace. There's so much more. Hi, my name is Jason Belinskis from the Ace, New Jersey region, and I became obsessed with roller coasters and theme parks when I was in high school. I had a few friends who introduced me to Ace, and after a couple years of going to events as a guest, I finally joined. Everyone in the Ace, New Jersey region is so friendly and made me feel like I actually belong. And Ace has become like a second family to me. It's so important that I'm a part of a group who honors and preserves the history of roller coasters while celebrating the exciting additions of new ones. As I'm getting older, I have started to really learn and appreciate the history of attractions and amusement parks. And there really is no better place than Ace to surround yourself with people who share that same passion. Welcome to Ride With Us. Ride With Us. Presented by the American Coaster Enthusiasts, a group of super fans with a mission to appreciate, promote, and preserve roller coasters around the globe. Around the globe. It's time to keep your hands and feet inside the podcast at all times. Here's your hosts, Clint Novak and Chris Roberry. What is going on, my fellow American Coaster Enthusiasts? My name is Clint Novak. And I am Chris Roberry. And welcome to the Ride With Us podcast, the official podcast of the American Coaster Enthusiasts. Chris, oh, it's November. The parks, I'm... they're closed. Well, by me, they're closed. Well, yes, and that's the benefit of living in Texas or maybe in California or Florida, of course, is that everyone keeps talking about ride season ending and we're just like, what ride season? Let's, let's just go this weekend. <laughs> Well, the good news is, is uh, you know, uh, my home park, Kings Dominion, has uh, Winterfest, uh, Bush Gardens has Christmas Town, so I got a lot of events now that keep the parks open through January. So I guess that's good, uh, good to have. And uh, you know, I, I, my, I guess my coaster season really doesn't end until uh, January, and then it's only done for like two months. But uh, yeah, coaster season, and, and we missed haunt season. Uh, did you have a good haunt season? You know, I did have a really good haunt season. Uh, had my pants scared off a few times, which is always nice to do. And it, boy, let me tell you, has Halloween just not taken off? It's like a, everyone's favorite holiday now outside of Christmas. Yeah, uh, I, I I had a chance to go down to Universal Studios for uh, Halloween Horror Nights for a night, and oh, well, first of all, that was the craziest day ever because uh, it was like I was up for 22 hours. I did Sea World in the morning. I flew in, did Sea World in the morning, did Universal at night. I uh, got back to the hotel room at 12 and had to be on a plane at like 8 a.m. the next morning. But uh, it was just amazing. I uh, really, really enjoyed the Stranger Things haunted house there. Ghostbusters was awesome. Uh, really 
really enjoyed the event as a whole, and I had a great time uh, visiting my local haunts as well, including uh, I had a chance to throw my own haunt uh, at uh, at Funland. We had a couple haunted houses here, so it was, it was yeah. a really good season. And it looked like it uh, was really well received. You know, what's crazy, though, is that we're at that time of year where we're just going every month. It's a new major celebration or new major holiday. So for the amusement industry, we're going from out of Halloween right into Christmas because, you know, Thanksgiving, apparently nobody celebrates, at least in the amusement park industry. But there's a reason why they don't uh, celebrate Thanksgiving in the amusement park industry, and that's because everyone in the amusement industry is at uh, the IAPA Expo in Florida the week before Thanksgiving. Right. And what's really cool about it is that it kind of is like a big Thanksgiving. Everyone sort of gets together. And we'll be talking a lot about that uh, in this podcast, uh, specifically like what IAPA is, you know, why you should go and really just the overall experience, which it really is not to be missed. Uh, We'll also be talking to the Knobles as well. A great interview coming up. Yeah, we'll be talking about their family history, how they came from working in a lumber yard to working in a theme park and as well as just why they feel family parks are so important. And if you've ever heard of the Phoenix roller coaster or the flying turns, you're going to want to listen to this interview. It's really great. My uh, my cat is named Phoenix after uh, the number one wood coaster in the world. Now, does his name change every time a new number one Woody comes into play? No, that would just okay. confuse her. Okay, well, it's a cat too, so I really wouldn't care though. And also, we're going to take a deep dive into why do roller coasters close? Yeah, it's been a rough season for a lot of folks. I know there's been a few major rides that have closed recently. RIP Vortex at Kings Island comes to mind. So we're going to talk a little bit about why they close, and more importantly, why you should be celebrating every ride you go on, because you never know if it may be your last. But first, let's check out the ACE event rundown. Let's see what's happening in your region. This is Brett from ACE, New Jersey. Come join us December 7th at a Christmas and Storybook Land in Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. We have one hour ERT on Bubbles the Coaster and the TikTok Drop Tower. This is a treasure of a park. If you've not been here, I encourage you to come always a great turnout and it's a lovely lovely park we hope to see you there hey everyone this is nicholas lasquish the ace northern california regional rep wanting to talk to you about our ace norcal holiday party coming up on saturday december 7th at the santa cruz beach boardwalk expect ert on the loof carousel exclusive fire pit time with marshmallows an auction a white elephant gift exchange and a whole lot more check out acenorcal.org hey everyone This is Josh from the Southeast Region inviting you to join us at our Smoky Mountain Coaster Fest at Dollywood on Saturday, November 16th. Kick off the holiday season with your friends and family and more fun than you can shake a stick at, including nighttime ERT on the world's fastest wooden coaster lightning rod. Visit acesoutheast.org for more info and to register. All right, and for more information on events close to you, visit us online at aceonline.org. All right, so Chris, have you ever, I know you've been to IAPA. How many IAPAs have you been to now? This will be my third IAPA this year. I'm really excited about it. And I know a lot of folks here will, you know, this IAPA thing, I hear it happens every November. It's always right before Thanksgiving. What the heck is it? And you know what? It's it's crazy because I've been going for, I think, like 15 years now. And uh, it's really weird because f- for the last four years, I've been going as a buyer. 
But before that, I was going as a part of the media, uh, a coaster enthusiast. And so my role has really changed in IAPA uh, over the last uh, four or five years now. Uh, and, and, it, and it's much, much different. You know, when I would go as a coaster enthusiast or a YouTuber, I would be going to talk to, you know, uh, B&M and Rocky Mountain and, you know, uh, great coasters. And you want to get all the interviews and you want to catch all the different hype and press and announcements. I was there when they announced Hard Rock Park. I was there when they announced Hard Rock Park. How exciting was that? Uh, you know, it was all these different things going on. And now I go there and I'm like, okay, I need to talk about POS systems and how to integrate labor-free initiatives and uh, how do we, uh, you know, how, oh, we're looking at uh, this thing and that thing. And it's all stuff that people are like, I don't even know what that is. And that's, well, that's what's going to make my business float. So that's what I got to go look at. And I think that's something that a lot of folks don't necessarily realize about IAPA is that it is a giant trade show where literally anybody who touches the amusement industry is represented. So you could have your your big, sexy roller coaster companies in their big, giant booths. But then right next to them can be these really small companies, these little tiny startups that just have this really great idea for, you know, a new bowling alley or a new arcade game. Or, hey, check out this cool inflatable thing that we got. And it has just as much relevance to the industry as that giant coaster, but it doesn't necessarily get that coverage. So it's really great to hear, like, from your perspective, where you went before as just a fan, and now you get to see it from that business perspective, just how much business is done at these four days in Orlando. And, and it's also crazy, too, to think, uh, you know, when a big coaster gets built, people often think, oh, well, you know, that coaster was an Inman coaster. But you don't always recognize the fact that there was other companies that helped assist in the building of that coaster. Uh, one, from the erection of the coaster. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, like uh, Rocky Mountain or other groups will have to hire a company to come in and do the programming for the coaster. Mm -hmm. um, there's also sensors that aren't necessarily built by the major company. It's built by separate companies and uh, every company is different and they all have their strengths and weaknesses and where they have their weakness they're usually hiring another company to fill the gap and uh, and so you'll be walking around the floor and you'll see oh I don't even know what this booth is and then you start talking to them and you find out that that booth was instrumental in building you know maybe like the Hagrid motor coaster you know they you, you, you had no clue that they had such a prominent role in something like that you know it's just because they are uh, a small piece to a large puzzle yeah it's just like when you go and fly in an airplane like if it's either Boeing or an Airbus plane well yes Boeing and Airbus designed it but they didn't build the engines. They didn't build, in fact, most of the parts for the plane. In fact, those came from a bunch of other sources to come together under this one brand of a Boeing 737 or an Airbus A320neo, something like that. And it really is amazing, first of all, just how big this show is. Like, it is so big, the Orange County Convention Center cannot even hold everybody inside anymore. There's an entire outdoor exhibit that, honestly, I've, I've missed the past two years because I haven't had time. Uh, and so they're actually looking at expanding the convention center just to bring this one show under one roof. 
That's yeah, insane. And, and I, I do, you, you say they're thinking about, I think they've already finalized those plans. And this is, uh, uh, after this year, we'll be hearing more information on the expansion of the Orange County Convention Center to hold uh, bigger conventions. And it, like, like Chris said, it's insane because when you walk onto this floor for the first time and you look at it, you're like, there's no possible way that all of this is relevant. And then you walk outside and you're like, they built... Two huge, like indoor football field sized tents uh, to house more people because they just don't have the room or space anymore, and uh, it, it's just crazy how quickly this thing is expands and and what it includes, and it really, really is just a fun thing. If if you've never done it before, it's not something that you're gonna go and you're gonna, you know get to ride all these crazy rides and stuff like that. There's usually not a lot of rides there. They have some prototypes and some small stuff there that you'll be able to enjoy. Uh, sometimes like Zimperla, they usually bring the same ride year after year. Uh, and then somebody buys it from the floor because uh, shipping was pretty much included on that one because it's already here in the U.S. So, uh, you know, you're always looking for those kind of deals and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, you're looking at people from bowling alleys, uh, FECs, family entertainment centers, uh, amusement parks, uh, theme parks, uh, themed restaurants, Restaurants, um, you know, a, th there's just such a wide range of of people who are going to be uh, there uh, looking for uh, the next stuff for their uh, their uh, venue. And that's where it gets kind of tricky, though, right? Because a lot of people have sort of seen the coverage of the show and have said, "Wow." This looks like a giant D23 fan convention, except it's in Orlando and it's even bigger. But it's not, is it? Not unless you're into inflatables. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a bit of too much information, if you ask me. <laughs> but no, it is spot on that it's not necessarily there for the fans. It's really it's about buying and selling and learning about the industry. Is there that a fan interaction? Absolutely. There are some booths that you can go up to. And yeah, you can talk to the designer of a ride. Uh, but more importantly, it's about networking. So if you're looking for a job in the industry or maybe even an internship, you're right out of college, you're about to be right out of college, then yeah, you want to go to this show and you want to be dressed to the nines with resumes in your hand. And you can go up to those booths and talk to those people and get that face-to-face -face time. But if you're looking to just nerd out, eh, it's not necessarily the best place to be, wouldn't you say, Clint? Yeah, it, it's really hard to take uh, take away uh, people's time from selling their product. Uh, you know, again, I went for several years as a YouTuber, and our job was to get all the coverage we possibly could uh, from uh, different aspects of the show, and that often meant there's a lot of uh, stand around and wait. Uh, you know, you would try to you know book uh, appointments ahead of time, but even if that was to happen, you still didn't want to take away time from them from being able to them for them to sell their product and so sometimes it it became hard to get the interview we wanted only because of the fact that again we're they're not there to interview get interviewed by us they're there to sell rides and uh, that is always the the number one factor is buying and selling uh, and, and like Chris said, networking, it's a big deal as well. Also, if you work in an amusement park, there is a good chance that they are tied with IAPA and there are programs that would allow you to go to IAPA to represent your amusement park in a way uh, that will help you in your future education uh, and networking for uh, IAPA. And that's to become an IAPA ambassador. Yeah, and that's a really great program for those who are just wanting to start in the industry and really want to get a feel for it. You get an opportunity to really network with a ton of industry professionals, and you get to see the show 
for what it really is, which is just this massive trade show and gathering of the best minds in the entire industry all under one roof. Yep. And Did an I ambassador- mention the after parties? Uh, yeah, exactly. And the reason why it's fun to be an ambassador is one, uh, IAPA picks up some of the tab, and sometimes the amusement park, you, the amusement park that you're representing and work at, could pick up the other part of the tab. Uh, but it also is just it, it, you really get to help, uh, like almost like an intern for IAPA. You're helping them put the show on, and you're filling in all of the little gaps that uh, you know have to be filled in in order to to uh, do such a huge event. And there's so many. Uh, smaller events that are tied to this event. Like, uh, for an example, they have a big gala on Thursday night where they bus people over to uh, this year. It's going to be uh, uh, Universal Studios Islands of Adventure. And ambassadors have to help in that big undertaking to get everybody from the expo to uh, 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 the uh, uh, Islands of Adventure. So, uh, you know, just things like that. And uh, if, if you're thinking about doing that, you're already too late. You need to do it for next year because uh, they really start looking uh, in the summertime for those ambassadors. You have to uh, enroll in the program uh, or apply for the program, and uh, and it really helps if uh, the park that you work at has uh, some type of tie-in or already works in the ambassador program. And you've heard us both talk a lot about just the scale of this show, and I don't think it really comes across without actually being there, but I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, they always market it as, was it 10 or 20 miles of aisles? Like, you can be on the trade show floor on one end of this building and you cannot physically see the other side of the building because of the curvature of the earth. <laughs> that I was is how I just going to say it has nothing to do with the curvature of the earth, but you got yes. it. Okay. It, it is it is just absolutely insane how massive it is. And more importantly and more amazingly, how quickly it all comes together. By Monday, there is nothing but a concrete slab on the bottom of the convention center. By Tuesday morning, there is carpet everywhere. There are booths already set up, lights, electrical, you name it, and it has completely come to life. It is just unlike anything you have ever seen in your entire life. It's as if those tiny little portable carnivals just all came together and showed up at once for Christmas. That's just what it feels like. It's actually, you know, and this is not really an exaggeration, but you could almost fit... Uh, all of the outdoor midways of Universal Studios into the building uh, that it houses. So maybe not the outdoor, the uh, you know the ride buildings that are on the outskirts of Universal Studios, but if you took all of the midway, you could pretty much fit it into uh, the Orange County Convention Center. That's how big this thing is, massive. Absolutely. And so one of the big things that you want to remember if you're thinking about attending the show, uh, which is, A, you might want to hurry up because it's only in a few days, but also make sure you have a comfortable pair of shoes. Sneakers, not necessarily the best thing to do because you want to make sure you look good. But if you have some of those uh, insoles or something like that to sort of help you, you're going to need them because you will be sore. Yeah, I uh, I threw out the sneaker rule uh, after year one. Uh, so after year <laughs> one, I would still wear a suit and tie, but I would wear sneakers because it's just it's impossible. And when you're, it's funny because when you walk around the show, that is exactly the style that most people have. It's like, oh, you've got a sports coat, tie, dressed nice, and then you've got sneakers on because it's impossible. 
he almost you feel like really jealous about the folks in the little mobility scooters. You're like, <laughs> oh, man, I really use one of those right about now. Uh, just an interesting fact, because I am a huge nerd when it comes to Google Maps. If you go to Google Maps and you look at the Orange County Convention Center uh, from space, you actually see uh, two weeks prior to IAPA happening uh, where they're actually setting up the very large tents in the uh, in a part of the parking lot. And you can see they're halfway through the construction of the fence uh, in the uh, parking lot. So very interesting stuff going on there. You were talking about networking and finding a job. I'm proof positive of that. I got a job in the industry from attending IAPA. So yes, it really can happen. I've known many folks who have had a chance to actually intern because they went to IAPA, because they introduced themselves to a manufacturer or a vendor. It really is the best place to go if you're looking to get into this industry. And I totally agree with that. Uh, I I was not hired at Funland as a general manager, but I did work my way up to general manager. And I believe the reason why I was a perfect fit for this position is because of the uh, of the background I had with uh, being a coaster enthusiast, and uh, and the fact that I just I I had so much knowledge to bring to the table because of the things I've learned through networking at IAPA. Uh, you know, when we go to IAPA. I walk around and I know everybody and the owner was like, well, how do you know all these people? And it's like, well, I've been coming here for 15 years now. Uh, you get to know people when you're, when you're interviewing them. So, uh, you know, really, it really turned out to be one of the reasons why I was uh, perfect for this job. Absolutely. And the other thing that is really incredible about the industry is that it is so, it is large. I mean, it's international, but it's very small, if that makes any sense. Like everybody knows everybody and if you, you know, get a good reputation at IAPA, it goes a long way. And, and there's some great things you can do at IAPA if you uh, pay uh, to be a part of uh uh, you know, uh, uh, the experience, uh, you can also do some of the, like the opening ceremony you can go to, which is really neat. Uh, brass ring awards is something that you can pop into and check out. Uh, there's, uh, other things like the hall of fame. Well, the hall of fame is usually during the uh, opening presentation, but, uh, there's a lot of different things, uh, big theater kind of stuff that you can go check out. There's also lectures and, uh, panels and things that you can do. That's on the education side really is a, a great place to, uh, uh, you know, again, educate yourself networking uh it really is full circle right there and uh the american coaster enthusiasts uh, have a booth at iapa in fact ace is the only enthusiast group that actually has a booth representation at iapa which i'm really proud of and it really is great to see all the folks who are big friends of ace and and friends of the industry come to the booth talk to us and just you know thank us for being there and uh, if you have any questions about the uh, anything that we talked about uh, in, in regards to IAPA, uh, please send us an email. That's right. Just send us an email to podcast at aceonline.org. You can even ask us, who would you like to interview at IAPA when we're out there? Or if you want to hear something from IAPA, let us know in the emails. And uh, like I said, any questions you have, we can also point you in the right direction. Uh, there's a lot of people in the industry uh, who uh, support IAPA and the different uh, the different uh, 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 education uh, portions or ambassadors or anything like that. We can point you in the right direction, uh, so you know uh, where you have to go if you want to be uh, part of the part of the fun. Mm-hmm. 
And speaking of fun, there is always one family that I always look forward to seeing at IAPA, and that is the Knobles clan. You cannot miss them. Uh, they are always on the floor, always looking for the newest, latest, and greatest thing that they can bring to their park. But at the same time, they're also looking at ways that they can balance their sort of family traditional park aspect that has made their park so famous around the world, Clint. So we had a chance to actually sit down and talk with them and sort of experience what the history of Knobles was about, why they enjoy it so much, and how they went from running a lumber company to having the number one wooden roller coaster in the world. Yes, they are connected. Here's the interview. Well, everybody, I'm very excited to have with us Rick and Brian Knoble from Knoble's Amusement Park in Elysburg, Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? We're doing great. Wonderful. So a lot of folks may not necessarily, you know, you've heard about Knoble's. Tell us a little bit about why you think Knoble's has succeeded in an era when corporate parks seem to be the norm. We're that throwback park. We're that park that so many parents used to visit. Uh, I don't want to name any, you know, let, let's say competitors. We're not really competitors in, the, in this industry. We're all friends. We text each other, call each other all the time. But, you know, we have no gate. It's free to park. So we pride ourselves on free admission, free parking, free picnic area, and free entertainment. Grandma and Grandpa get more satisfaction out of coming to Knoebel's and getting more joy out of watching their grandchildren ride the rides than they would themselves. Grandma and Grandpa so many times are on a limited budget, and they can come here and not even spend a nickel. Where other parks, you know, you're paying to park, you're paying to get in, not a whole lot of value in that for the amount of rides that they're going to ride. Can you all give us a little bit of a history lesson on Knobles, how it sort of came to be that this park in the middle of Pennsylvania is now world-renowned for the culture and just everything about the park. Our, our family purchased uh, the tract of land that Knobles was on back in the 1840s, but, and it was used uh, primarily uh, to farm at that time. But over the years, uh, it, was, it was a very attractive piece of land, and a lot of people would come here to swim in the creek, which formed a natural swimming hole. And we had to put a fence around the uh, water to keep the cows out, and as more people came, we started charging a dime to swim on Sundays. As it progressed, we had some picnic tables, and we started to charge the feed and groom the horses. And we had a popcorn stand. And then finally, in 1926, uh, we built a pool next to the uh, swimming hole and uh, brought in our first carousel ride. And is that the same carousel that is there today? Unfortunately, no. The original carousel was destroyed in a flood. Not, not here. We had sold it to a park in Hunlock Creek, Pennsylvania, and it was destroyed there. We still have a horse from it, though, in our carousel museum. The carousel that we currently have, the Grand Carousel, uh, was hand-carved in uh, 1912 or 13 by uh, Charles Carmel. But uh, we had purchased it from a park in New Jersey in 1941. We've had it here since 42. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of actually going out to the park and experiencing it. And it is definitely one of the best carousels, if not the best carousel in the entire country, let alone the entire world. Did you catch the brass ring? You know, we tried. <laughs> and, uh, and it just means that I have to come back and try again. You can, you know, you catch rings and where you can still catch the brass ring. Now, I'm a bit spoiled because I come from the West Coast and there may be another park that has another antique carousel out there as well that may or may not be on the coast. So 
to be able to see another carousel that has just rings in general, let alone an actual brass ring, is a rare treat these days. Why? Because a lot of people would say, well, that stuff, it's old hat. Uh, you know, why don't you modernize? There's a very good argument against that, but I'd love to hear why you all feel it's so important to keep those traditions alive. It goes back to your roots. It's who we are. It's what our ancestors, the, the, you know, the ground that they laid, the rides that they purchased. We put an awful lot of time and energy, a lot of resources into maintaining those older rides. We don't want to be a Six Flags park. We don't want to be a Cedar Fair park. We don't want to be, you know, the, these uh, typical theme parks that so many people go to. We want to, again, remain true to our roots. Besides, everybody loves to catch the brass ring. Absolutely. I mean, what other phrase from our industry permeates throughout the entire world? Catch the brass ring. There's job websites that are named after that. And it all comes back to working at a park and trying to grab that brass ring from the carousel. I think that's fascinating to see that it's really seeped into the nomenclature of our speech. So we've talked a bit about the history about the park. Let's go a bit more into when Knobles really got on the map. Tell me a little bit about the history of the rocket at Playland in San Antonio and how you all were able to take that wooden roller coaster, transport it all the way up to Knoebels, and then maintain it at such a level that it is still, and just recently, re-ranked as the number one wooden roller coaster in the world. The rocket started at Playland Park in 1947 in San Antonio, Texas, and was a great ride then, uh, up until uh, the park closed down in 1980. And at that point, uh, my father, our father, Dick, received a, uh, a number of calls and, and magazine articles and so forth about you know trying to save the uh, the rocket. And so this is probably, yeah, it was early 1980s. And we went down uh, and took a look and uh, took some core samples of the wood and so forth and decided this is the ride for us. We went around to a lot of uh, experts, and uh, they all said that you can't feasibly move a wooden roller coaster from Texas to Pennsylvania. It just can't be done. And uh, our father said, watch us. <laughs> In that very Dick Knobel type voice, exactly. I assume. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the process of how do you move a wooden roller coaster from Texas to Pennsylvania? Well, uh, in the disassembly, we, we kept all the uh, the bents, you know, intact. You know, we didn't use any of the ribbon boards or the, the original track. And uh, we got as many blueprints as we possibly could. And we also hired a, a surveyor down there to uh, survey uh, the, uh, the field that was on. And we found, after bringing it up here, that the survey was done incorrectly and threw all that data out. And we built it as was initially intended. You know, not as it was in, in Texas. And uh, that's what really, really helped. There's a story that its current location, uh, like kind of right next to the lumberyard here at Knobles, it was, that was a, like a last-minute decision. They actually had lines all strung out and um, locations of footers on the other side of the park. So, so Knobles is in two different counties. Yeah, the Phoenix is in Northumberland County. But we had a spot laid out in Columbia County, and it wasn't until the ride was the rocket was being disassembled when we decided, you know, we think it would look good over here. 
So talk about being a shoot from the hip type of park. Yeah, yeah that's us. For another triple word score, it was very serendipitous. <laughs> I'll definitely say, and I've, like you said, I've had the chance to actually ride Phoenix and for everybody who looks at the Golden Ticket Awards and they say, how is this little coaster that's not even 100 feet tall? How is it the number one wooden coaster in the world? It is the number one wooden roller coaster in the world. And you were sort of hinted at it, but you have an advantage in that you actually own a lumberyard. So a lumberyard moving a wooden roller coaster, all of a sudden it doesn't sound as difficult, I guess, as it would if it was just a park deciding to move something, right? Well, it's pretty involved. <laughs> you know, we, the lumberyard simply <laughs> supplies the lumber for both Phoenix a twister and a flying turns, but it would just be like us, you know, purchasing it from, you know, someone else at retail. It was more so the team that was able to move the rocket from San Antonio to Ellisburg to Canobles. So let's continue the whole theme here of preservation. Phoenix is not the first ride that you all have had the opportunity to save or to bring back. In fact, there's quite a few flat rides at the park that I don't think you'll find pretty much anywhere else in the world. Why is that go back to just the, that everyone can still enjoy it and that you sort of see yourselves almost in a way, like as a museum, like a living history museum that you can actually experience. I'm going to go back to use the, the word earlier throwback. We could buy new rides if we wanted to, but again, that's not, and we do from time to time. Uh, but that's not us. You know, Rick and I have often discussed and talked about, are we a museum or are we a park? Are we a museum with rides? Are we, are we a park that has that little bit of educational nostalgia to it? Yeah, that's us. That's who we are. Sure. We go to IAPA Expo or Give Town and talk to ride suppliers, ride manufacturers. Of course we do. But at the same time, we're always keeping an eye open for what nostalgic rides might be available. What can we disassemble, bring back here, take it apart bolt by bolt, check every weld, every nook and cranny, sandblast it, private paint it. Uh, voila, here's a new ride for the next year. And I think that's something that a lot of folks who maybe haven't had a chance to actually experience your park in person or have heard about it, but haven't really had a chance to go in depth about it, really don't understand, which is that the love and attention that goes into bringing some of these classic rides back is on a level that I don't think anywhere else in the world you'll see. I mean, these rides are practically brand new from the 1940s and 50s. And I think for a lot of folks, that's that's a bit strange to think, but it's absolutely true that these rides are probably running better than they did when you first got them and brought them over to Knobles. You know, there's a, there's a Jeopardy question in there, like how many rides, we have 64 rides, how many were new and how many were used? So, I mean, that's, that's uh, quite a pat on the back, tip of the hat to our team who are you know, talented enough to strip these down and, and make them beautiful and, yeah. and safe. We have, we have some very, very meticulous uh, people in our maintenance department. Let's continue on then and talk a bit more about your second major project of bringing back a ride that, that was gone or was about to be demolished, and that's Twister. Now, for those who aren't initiated, Mr. Twister was a ride at Elitch Gardens in Denver. 
that was demolished uh, because the park moved from the suburbs of Denver to right in downtown. And of course, now 15, 20 years later, they're talking about moving it once again. Twister was lost, but it wasn't because you all had an opportunity to really survey it and figure out how can we take it and bring it to our park? Uh, a member of our staff named John Fetterman, who was uh, very involved with the, the Phoenix Project, came to the family, I think in 98, you know, asking if he could uh, redo the, the Twister. Uh, I think at that point, uh, Mr. Twister had already been announced that it was going to be torn down. And we, we told him to go ahead with this project. And uh, we threw a lot of effort into it. But it opened in July of 99. It was fantastic. I think we were still hammering things you know, together on the day that it opened. <laughs> Just to make sure it was right. Yeah. But uh, there, there were some unique features about Twister that Mr. Twister doesn't have. You know, uh, we, we had to maintain the, the uh, that double helix that was also in Mr. Twister. That was important. Mathematically, they're nearly identical. But one of the issues is that we couldn't fit the lift hill in the area provided. So John Fetterman and uh, Dick came up with a solution to cut the lift hill in half and put one directly underneath the other and uh, created a split lift hill. And had the curve that you go between lift hills one and two uh, is identical to the curve at the very top uh, before you go down the, uh, the main drop. Copy and paste, you know, for, from the uh, upper lift hill to uh, the turns between lift one and lift two, and then after lift two before the drop. Obviously, Twister and Phoenix are two totally different types of rides, even though they're the same, you know, they're a wooden roller coaster. They have a much different experience. Can you talk a bit about how those experiences differ between the rides? The Phoenix has a lot of uh, up and down motion. So in, especially towards the end, where a lot of people call uh, the airtime buffet. When you have that, you know, harmonic up and down motion, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Whereas Twister is a lot more lateral forces. Uh, take it from side to side, you know, throughout. There, there's really not a whole lot of uh, up and down airtime on on Twister, so there there are two very different animals, and there, there's a lot. Of, there's a group of enthusiasts that uh, you know love the Twister, you know, even more than the Phoenix, but you know, it's it's what people like. You know, some people want that uh, side to side motion, and some people like that up and down motion. And there's a tribute to, in addition to the fact that the ride was rebuilt from the original blueprints of Mr. Twister, there is also a little piece of Mr. Twister inside of your Twister, correct? That's right. We have the uh, what's called a golden bolt. Uh, if you go into the entrance and, and uh, look up into your left, you'll see a golden bolt that was provided to us by uh, Elitch Gardens. It's so amazing to be able to literally ride on that history and, and know that there's a lineage there that, that really can't be beat. After you put in Phoenix, then you put in Twister, and the enthusiasts go bonkers. Then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, comes the announcement that the park is going to bring back the flying turns. The flying turns, by the, for folks who may not know, are it's like a bobsled, except uh, back in the day, there were no steel plates that you could bend like that. So they just used wood planks. And it is very much an artistic form to be able to, to bend the wood like that and, and make it work. It was not easy, though, to bring flying turns to life. Can you talk a bit about the struggles of getting it to work and getting it to work reliably? <laughs> Quite the challenge. I think, believe it was seven years beginning to end. So many people said, give up on it. You're not going to do it. Get, you know, stop doing it. 
And again, that same driven Dick Knoble was not about to give up. He was not about to throw in the towel. I am going to do this. And, you know, in his voice, that's people say I can imitate him well. It's a very good impression. <laughs> so many different designs we went through. It's actually three layers of lumber to make that trough. And we used cypress. We were, that, because that's what was original in, in Cleveland, where I think there were, what, seven flying turns rides in the past, from what I understand. And we used cypress. Well, we, in during all the testing, we found out the sandwiched piece of lumber in there, the cypress, had rotted away because it would get wet, but the sunlight would dry out the, the top layer and the bottom layer, but the middle layer was soaked. So we ended up having to tear that out where we used treated lumber, just like on Phoenix or Twister, uh, but the top layer was, was still cypress. Yeah, we, we learned an awful lot about Cypress uh, during that. We found that, you know, today's Cypress is not like the Cypress that, you know, they used, you know, 50 or 100 old, years old ago. Growth. Old growth Cypress. Today, the Cypress has grown very close together to create a larger yield. What happens when you put them too close together, the, the growth rings are tightly packed together because there's, you know, competition for the nutrients. And what happens is it changes this water solubility. It's not the same as an old growth Cypress that they, they would pull out of the swamp. And who would have thought that you would have to know about horticulture in order to build a roller coaster? But again, these are the things that, you know, back in the day, you didn't have to think about. Can you talk a bit about the industry's involvement and, and ACE's involvement in helping to get flying turns working? Well, my, my dad uh, had been to Euclid Beach and rode the flying turns. And he said that was the only ride that ever scared him. You know, all through uh, all through his life, and, and you know, at some point, he always thought about you know bringing that back. But it was more of a, a pipe dream until a lot of enthusiasts had come to see him and, and you know pointed to different articles. I think uh, Kim Peterson uh, was one of them that uh, wrote an article that shared with Dick. There were there were quite a few, and he finally uh, talked a lot with with Jim Martini first, who uh, works here, uh, with John Fetterman, who, as I said before was involved with the, uh, the the Twister, but it wasn't until a few years down the road we had uh, Mike Boodley, you know, throw his uh, expertise into it. And, you know, that's when he decided to, uh, you know, go ahead and, and uh, pull the trigger. And just a bit of insight for those who may not have some of those name drops. Mike Boodley originally helped found Great Coasters International in the late 1990s. And you know Great Coasters International these days, which is, of course, right down the street from Knobles, right down the street, Pennsylvania style, I guess. Well, the uh, GCI was also, the other founding member was Claire Hain. And Claire Hain cut his teeth here at Knobles. He helped uh, build the uh, the Twister as an 18-year-old carpenter. No, I'm sorry, Phoenix. the Phoenix. Excuse me. Well, the Phoenix as an 18-year-old carpenter. Wow. And, you know, is it incredible to think of all the people that, you know, they start as either a janitor or in Claire's case as a carpenter, and now he owns his own company building wooden roller coasters all around the world. It, it really is incredible to know how small the industry is, but also how it nurtures its employees to, you know, give them an opportunity to, to go on their own, or in some cases to stay with the company. I mean, Knobles is a family owned park, and you really don't see that very often anymore. Let's talk about your signature enthusiast event, Phoenix Fall Fun Fest. How did it come to be, 
and how big has it become? So it started with a couple of guys sitting around Jim Martini's apartment talking about roller coasters. It was Chris Paul, it was John Moyer, it was John Fetterman, and little by little, uh, some more more names, and then a few more names, and a few more names. Now I think this, uh, on, on Friday, October 4th, we hosted again, uh, you know, the private party where we opened Phoenix Haunted Antique Cars, uh, everyone got some food, tumbling timbers. You know, that's where uh, it's inaugural season. We opened tumbling timbers. And we had 650 enthusiasts come that night for uh, a, a lot of smiles, a lot of laughter. Uh, who doesn't like to ride Phoenix in the dark? Put a smile on the entire Knobel's families, Knobel family faces. When so many people said the Phoenix is running better than it ever has before. We're, we're proud, you know, to have this coaster at our park. We're proud, uh, you know, when the enthusiasts tell us this, but it goes back to the team that maintains the ride. I mean, they, they take ownership of it. They truly blood, sweat, and tears seven days a week. They stay on top of it. So uh, it's my favorite ride for a reason. And I know it's a lot of other people's favorite ride as well as indicated by the fact that, again, it's won the best wooden roller coaster in the world. And, you know, for those listening, you really I can't stress enough just how great this park is. And, you know, as Brian was mentioning earlier, it really is a throwback to a different era, but in a way that it still balances itself so well that you have your throwback rides and you have some newer rides as well. So everyone in the family can enjoy a part of Knobles and that really is tough to find these days at other parks around the country. I wanted to sort of just wrap up with a question that I've asked a, a few others in this series, which is what do you all think that the industry needs more of? And, and what do you think the industry needs less of? The industry needs more Dick and Obels. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That? That's an excellent answer. Yeah. And what do you think the industry needs less of? Honestly, that needs less we're going to choose this ride and why. So there are six active Knobel family members at Knobel's, and we are a family first. We are a business second. We get together and we and we talk about things. What Knobel's is through my eyes, what Knobel's is through Rick's eyes, Dick, Buddy, Leanna, and Trevor, what it is through their eyes. Are we open to suggestions? Sure we are. Whether it's you know yourself, whether it's our, our friends in the industry, enthusiasts, whether it's some of the names we mentioned earlier, like Jim Martini, John Fetterman, of course. But, you know, it's our decision. It's not a, a board comprised of people that don't even work here, that don't know who we truly are. So the industry needs less corporate, if that's if I can answer that way. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this as well, which is what's next for Knobles? You've got, you know, it's the question that, of course, everybody wants to ask. Some people will tell us, how much bigger do you really want to get? One of our lines a lot of times in our brochure is Pennsylvania's hometown park. Well, we're at 64 rides, and that's a lot of iron. How much bigger do you really want to get to be that hometown park? But at the same For guests and, and uh, uh, staff alike. Going to come. Yeah, but sometimes that new could be food. It doesn't have to be a ride. So, you know, we're kind of known for our food. Golden Ticket Awards, some of the years, uh, 17, I believe. It, just, it doesn't even have to be anything actually new-new. It just could be a, a better process. You know, it could be, 
something that made things, you know, simpler and easier. Well, gentlemen, thank you again so much for the opportunity to speak with you and be able to share your story. If you haven't had an opportunity yet, folks, get out to Knobles, check out this park. It really is something special in our industry. And all these Golden Ticket Awards, they're there for a reason. And you really, it should be on your bucket list, if not on your every year list to go out and visit. So gentlemen, thank you again for speaking with us today. Chris, thank you for having us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much for the Knobles taking the time out to chat with us for the Ride With Us podcast. So Clint, we just got through Halloween and sort of the spooky season's over. But unfortunately, we do have to say goodbye to some of our fallen brethren in the amusement industry. That's right. I'm talking about rides that have been retired. Dun, dun, dun. So it's inevitable that rides eventually wear down. And yes, eventually do have to be retired. So one of the big ones this year, and one that I think really caught a lot of people off guard, was Vortex at Kings Island. Not necessarily because of its age, but just because of people coming out of the woodwork saying how much they loved it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, there's definitely two classes of people. Uh, there's going to be people who grew up with a coaster and have a sentimental attachment to that coaster. And then there's going to be people who didn't necessarily have that coaster when they were a child. They're not going to have the sentimental attachments for it. And they usually see it for really what it is. And uh, Vortex, to me, I didn't grow up with it. So I was not a fan of it because they kind of beat you up a little bit, right? Uh, yeah, in the 1980s technology wasn't necessarily the computer-aided design that we're so spoiled with these days. But it does have a certain, and we called it the arrow charm, by the way, uh, on the documentary, <laughs> that it has that sort of feel to it that you can tell this thing wasn't designed by computer. This thing was forged by hand. And it just it has that certain nostalgia to it, I guess. Uh, definitely. It, but it only has that nostalgia to it if you're really, really tied in to uh, to the coaster itself. So if you grew up with the coaster or if even if, OK, coaster enthusiasts, of course, they're going to be nostalgic for it because they understand, uh, you know, its history and where it's coming from. But that only makes up a very, very small percentage of the people who would actually be visiting the Vortex. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's it, it really this year has been a tough year for coasters leaving us because Volcano uh, actually shut down at Kings Island with little to no notice. I mean, it was down all last year, and then we found out, well, it's not ever going to open again. And so, you know, I'll say Vortex, they at least got to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've also uh, lost uh, Wild Mouse at Fuji Q, uh, the rock and roller coaster at Disneyland Paris, uh, RIP, and a sort of RIP, but Green Lantern at Six Flags Magic Mountain uh, is uh, leaving that park. Of course, it's going to the Ronde in Canada. But again, you're losing a ride, which is never a, like, a fun thing to happen. So a lot of people ask, well, why do these rides have to close? I mean, they've been around for so long. Why can't they just, you know, weld them up again or replace the track? It's not really that easy, is it, Clint? No, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of factors. You know, it, it's it, one, it's hard for a company 
you know, okay, it's it's hard to keep a coaster going with a company itself no longer has a huge presence. So let's take Arrow for this example. Um, yes, Arrow was bought out by another company, and that company is doing their best to keep the old products in line. But bottom line is, every roller coaster has a shelf life, and and the fact is, actually, a wood coaster has a longer shelf life than a steel coaster, and that's because it's easier to replace those parts than it is a steel coaster. A steel coaster is very, very expensive, and uh, usually when a park is going to be looking into uh, repair and replace, uh, the cost to repair and replace a steel coaster is going to be much, or to repair it is going to be much higher, so they just opt to, let's replace it, we're going to get something bigger and better in here with that kind of money. And I can tell you from being on both sides of the the story here, from being an enthusiast and then working in the industry, it's not a a thing that people take lightly when you're on the other side of that, when you're not when you're in the actual industry. Retiring a ride is it's painful for the folks who have to make that decision. It's not like they're just doing it out of spite. You know, I hear a lot of that I see online where people are, well, they're just doing this because they don't like us. No, no, no. They're doing it for the right reasons. It's never easy to say we want to retire a ride. In fact, uh, one of the general managers that I used to work with uh, put it really well. He said, I don't like to remove rides because odds are that ride is somebody's favorite ride. And I don't want to take that away from them. And I thought that was really eloquent. And I really liked and appreciated that because I'm a big nostalgia buff. I mean, heck, we did the documentary on Arrow because of, you know, we're big history fans. But I really like the way that he thought that, you know what? Yeah, the ride may not be the biggest, the scariest, the tallest, the fastest, the most inversions, the most OMFG type of ride. But you know what? It's somebody's favorite. And I would hate to take that away from them. So that, that really stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 like you said, it's it's hard because you're seeing it from two different angles. And, uh, you know, anyone who says that they're they're doing it just because obviously doesn't understand the whole the whole philosophy. There's there's the factor of, you know, cost. Uh, there's a labor issue, too. You know, you can only have so many rides at an amusement park before you hit some kind of capacity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I believe we already have started seeing some of those capacity issues playing out in amusement parks across the U.S. It's going to be harder to um, hire, maintain a workforce and keep people on these rides because it's expensive to operate a ride not just uh, not just electric and stuff like that but from the labor uh, labor side of things and so you have to start picking and choosing you know you can't have every ride uh, in one park because of the amount of labor it would take so uh, okay we need we, we don't have any more labor force we need to move five people from one ride to another that means vortex goes down and something else is going to go up in its place and uh, you know it's all business decisions and I know you could say that's kind of a cold way to look at it but those those are facts and those are things that the the park really has to look at in order to um you know still be successful and not only that it's kind of like an old car you know eventually everything's going to break down and at some point you're gonna have to replace it so it's you know all sorts of different factors go into it which is the cost to replace the sections that might need replacement it can also come down to eventually steel rides they just wear down. Uh, it's just a fact of life. It's why you don't see a lot of really old airliners in the sky anymore, because there's a thing called metal fatigue. And that just means that it's like when you take a paper clip 
and you slowly keep trying to bend it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, eventually it's going to break and you can't put it back together. So there are some steel rides that are older than Vortex. Uh, there are some that are quite a few that are still younger than Vortex. But eventually they're all going to reach that point, that so-called service life, where it just doesn't make sense to keep them around anymore. So the most important thing, and Clint, I think you can agree on this, is that when you go on a go to a park or you go to on a vacation to a ride, you always go on everything because you never know what's going to change. But the one thing that's always constant in our industry is change. That that's very true. Uh, I don't have necessarily the same outlook as you because. Uh, uh, there are some rides that you could tell me tomorrow we're leaving and I could go out and ride it for free one more time. And I would probably say, no, done it, uh, done that. And uh, look forward to seeing its replacement. Uh, you know, I'll say, OK, Vortex was that ride. I would not have gone back to ride Vortex because it was rough for me. But Volcano, that is that was one that I was like, oh, I wish I could have had my my goodbye ride on. And, uh, you know, uh, not uh, terribly sentimental about it. It's just it was a really good ride. And I think uh, I think it died before its time. But uh, again, there's there's factors that we don't even understand or know that were playing into the reason why they couldn't bring that one back to life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, again, part of being a fan of the industry is that you always just have to be ready for crazy announcements, whether they be positive or sometimes not so positive. And I think that's a good place to wrap it up. What do you think, Chris? I think that's a great hope to see you all at IAPA this year. And if not, stay tuned on the ACE social channels because we're going to have tons of updates played there, both on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Clint, I think we might be doing some recording of our own while we're out there. So if you're at the show, come on over to the ACE booth. We'd love to see you. Definitely. It's going to be a great time. IAPA is one of my favorite weeks. I love Florida. I love IAPA. And I love seeing all my friends. Absolutely. And that's the best part of the trip, really. All right. We've got some thank yous, huh? Yeah. We'd like to thank all the folks who have taken the time to really help us with the podcast. You hear Clint and I, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes who really have contributed and made the podcast what it is. First off, big thanks to Robert Ulrich and Elizabeth Ringus on the executive committee for greenlighting this podcast and giving us the opportunity to do it. Uh, also, thanks to our contributing producers, Joe Ole, Mark Keller, Andrew Locke, Bryant Yeager, Vanessa Thomas, David Franz, Jason Wollenberg, Jeremy DeLong, George Taylor, Jeff Katz, and Robert Dean. Thank you guys so much for making us sound so good. All right. Well, that does it for the Ride With Us podcast. My name is Clint Novak. And I'm Chris Roberry. Hope to see you out on the Twisted Rails sometime soon. We'll see you guys on the Midway. See ya! Ride With Us is volunteer produced by the American Coaster Enthusiasts. ACE is a registered 501c3 charitable organization founded for the preservation and enjoyment of roller coasters around the world. Visit aceonline.org for more information.